Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Our podcast series examines from a range of perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience, bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Good morning and welcome. Uh, My name is Chris Fitch. Uh, Welcome to Vulnerability Matters and to our new series on Working in a Crisis. Today we're talking about death and bereavement. In normal circumstances, around 1,600 people die in the UK every single day. And in normal times, the people grieving the loss of that person would face not only emotional, but also practical challenges in the days, weeks, months, and often years that followed their death. Um, But we're not living in normal times. In April of this year, there were 6,000 additional deaths compared to April during 2019. And while not all of these extra deaths were due to coronavirus, a significant number are thought to be. So while all of the vulnerable situations they face, out of all of them, uh, essential service providers have had contact with bereaved customers and third parties for some time now, and systems have developed to deal with these. However, these contacts are fundamentally human ones for both staff and customers, And this means that no matter whether there is a system in place, these contacts can still be raw, challenging and difficult for everyone involved in them. So at this time of heightened awareness about bereavement, greater number of cases and also likely increased contact with firms from customers, this episode looks at how firms are and should be dealing with customer bereavement. To help us do this, uh, we're joined by a a live studio audience. Um, Welcome, everybody. Uh, we can see you gathered here today. You can join in, and it's really important that you do, using the uh, chat box and question uh, facility on the screen. So please do let us know that you're out there. Please do get your questions in early for our panelists, and please do sh- uh, share your stories and your experiences around bereavement uh, in the uh, workplace and dealing with customers. I'm also really pleased to say that we're uh, joined by two panelists today of the highest caliber. We have Andy Langford from Cruise Bereavement Care. Good morning, Andy. Morning, thanks for having me. Great stuff. Andy is Clinical Director at Cruise, who are the, as you know, the UK's largest bereavement support charity, who provide emotional and psychological support to bereaved people in the form of a national helpline, local face-to-face uh, one-to-one and group counselling services, peer support and training. And I'm also joined by Michael Kennelly from the Death Notification Service. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Chris, and thank you for the invite. Not a problem. Uh, Michael is Development Director, Equinity Benefactor, and among other services to businesses, is responsible for the Death Notification Service and its membership across all essential service sectors. So great to have everybody here. Uh, Wonderful to uh, have everybody online. Do get your questions in. Um, I'm going to start with a a question for Andy, and uh, I think that everyone will know what death is even if we don't like to think about it too much Andy however what is bereavement can you um, explain and unpack this for us sure Chris it's a really good question to start with and you know one of the things that's that's, uh, common about bereavement is is lots of people interpret it differently and broadly what we see at Cruise is the death of someone close Um, but when we talk about what closeness means it's often in relation to two things and 
the first thing is attachments. So it's the attachment we've got to someone. Um, and then the second thing is about how actively engaged are we in the relationship with them um, at, the point, at the point of death or soon before. Um, and those are two significant factors that can sort of help us understand how people react to that death of someone close. But the other, the other matter that's beginning to emerge as well is, you know, traditionally we've tended to refer to bereavement in relation to the death of people who are intimately close to us, you know, our closest friends or uh, family members. Um, but what we're seeing more and more now is that people are affected by, uh, by bereavement when someone dies who they relate to, even though they might not be intimately close with. So you often sort of see, um, you know, celebrity deaths being treated really seriously with a lot of emotion behind them on social media. So we consider those types of things that are, bereavement as well um i mean it, that wouldn't that also acts alongside other types of losses you know you can experience losses in lots of different ways you know loss of job loss of income loss of housing um but bereavement uh is sort of particularly related to the death of the death of someone close and we every death is is dealt with differently that that would be a correct statement to make it, it would and, and it's there's lots of unique factors to each death. Um, so the way in which we, we experience each death can, can be determined, you know, there's a number of common ways, but everyone experiencing death will experience it differently at those different times. So, um, you know, there'll be things like broadly, what's going on for you emotionally and psychologically at the time. Um, you know, taking the current context as a, as a prime example, uh, it's it's um, it's doubly hard to experience death now because of course you have this massive backdrop of of death as a result of global pandemic all over the news and the media you know understandably so um, and, and and then also you know there's other aspects like um, social engagement and how well we're tied in with people so you know at Cruise we certainly see aspects of or scenarios where people are have been bereaved of someone in their close family, you know, they've been living with them, whilst then at the same time they're also fearing for their own, for their own safety and wondering if they're next um, and, and if they might be infected. So you have these other um, factors as well. And the third thing I'd just point out as well is often people find things difficult when it's not necessarily an emotional thing, but it's actually a practical factor that's really going to affect people and how they experience their bereavement. And those factors are often economic. You know, so it might be around how do I pay the mortgage now my partner's died. It might be it might be um, an economic issue around around bereavement resulted in a job loss, things like that. So one of the things we can derive is that actually um, there's a lot of factors that affect someone during the bereavement to make it worse are then there are things we can do something about, you know, uh, which gives us a bit of hope in that respect as, as supporters. Okay, so we've got the, the, the emotional uh, side of bereavement, um, and you've talked about that, that range of responses, and we'll, we'll look at those in a bit more detail, including the fact that we live in a diverse multicultural society, um, including the fact that we, uh, we're living for a period at the moment where 
death is uh, is very much uh, every day in the news in the government briefings. We're, we're given the uh, the tick account of how many deaths have occurred around coronavirus. So that heightened kind of uh, in, environment. But you touched on saying that they're really interesting, and I'm going to go to Michael on this one because Andy was talking there, Michael, about the same time as uh, someone's um, grieving for someone they've lost. There are a large number of practical things that those who are grieving also have to make happen. Can you just talk us through what some of those practical things are? Yeah, sure, Chris, and and Andy's absolutely right. It's it puts a lot of people in a position that they've never been in before, and um, even being in that position for the first time, if you were thinking rationally, it's a difficult process to follow through. But usually there's a lot of an emotional attachment, particularly if it's a close friend or family member you've lost. And the aspects you're going to have to consider, first of all, is you need to register the death. And the process for doing that is his, uh, pre-COVID issues. It was face to face with a local registrar within five days. Then it's about arranging uh, funerals. Uh, pay, the cost of the funeral needs to be considered also telling family members and friends that may not be aware that somebody's passed away. Then you've got the huge aspects of the relationships that the deceased may have had with organizations such as the banks need to know, the government agencies need to know, for example, for pensions, for council tax, uh, the tax office needs to know. And what we're seeing as well in society these days is that people have more and more diverse relationships. If you went back maybe even as little as 10 years ago, chances are we would all have one bank as our bank that we did our current account savings mortgage etc but we've got more diversity now people are maybe using online providers for savings using a different company for a mortgage different for current account and then we're also seeing people start to use things like social media more and at Equinity, we deal with around 300,000 notifications of death per year, which is around 60% of the total deaths. And the data we're seeing suggests that now, as part of that, those practical steps, that somebody now needs to contact, on average, 21 different organizations to advise them of the death of a friend or family member. And that's 21 potential phone calls, emails, or letters that have to be written at what can be a very challenging time. So. Those practical steps are huge and they place so much burden on those that are left behind, as well as dealing with the grief, which Andy alluded to. It's about who do I contact? How do I contact them? And when you do contact them, what do I need to do? If I don't contact them, what happens? So there's all these aspects that really need to come through on there. And it goes, it goes, I'm going to bring in Andy here. It goes to that notion of kind of a whirlpool of grief on both a an emotional and a practical side. You're you're caring for those around you who are bereaved. You're look, trying to look after yourself. You've got these practical, the 21 different uh, contacts that we were taught, or actions that need to be taken that Michael mentioned. There is a huge amount going on there, Andy. Well, absolutely. And of course, um, you raise a good point there, Chris. Most people who are bereaved are also then supporting other people who are bereaved through that same bereavement. So. So it's not it's not just a case necessarily of thinking about or dealing with your own grief. It's also how you care for others. And certainly, what we would find, you know, Cruz is that is that we speak with people day in day out who are finding that they are putting off their own grief and putting aside their own feelings and thoughts because they're trying to care for others, which is absolutely the right thing to do. You know, if you're if you're a parent who's who's lost someone close to the family and you've got your children who are, gr are grieving, then you're, of course, you're going to support them first, aren't you? Um, 
you know, the same would go for, for people in a carer situation. Um, but actually, you know, what we find is there are, there are ways that people can help themselves through that, but it does require a bit of steer and a bit of assistance. And um, it's certainly not an unusual thing to find that added complexity. Mm. So I'm going to try and push you both on a, a question. We like to be uh, short on the obvious and long on the practical on these, uh, these discussions. So you're not allowed to use the word depends in your answer. Um, so we've got a question from Kevin um, who's just brought this up. And it's a really, it's a practical, it's an operational and a systems question, of course, as well as a human one. And it's around what's a reasonable period of time that we should be given for bereavement? And uh, Kevin refers to the kind of debt collection and maybe return to work here. It's a very tricky question to kind of answer. So maybe I could ask you to try and answer it by saying, how do we work out with a customer, uh, with a contact, kind of a, how long should be given for bereavement? What should we, what should we allow? Shall, shall I come in first, Chris, if that's okay? Mm, Just yeah, some thoughts. It's something that, uh, as somebody that works across a lot of different sectors, such as banks, utilities, telecoms, et cetera, that all need to be notified, usually on the deaf, but all have very different processes. We've always thought around, actually, the most practical way to deal with this is to deal with it in two separate entities. It's to first of all deal with the notification of death, as in letting the organisation know. So that prevents, for example, a utilities company where maybe a direct debit has stopped being paid for a, uh, for a gas or electric. If they know that somebody's passed away, they'll know why it hasn't been paid. And the second step for me then is allowing that cut, that notifier maybe up to 30 days grace to deal with all the emotional and the important aspects such as dealing with family and friends that need to be notified dealing with a funeral and then we look at the actual you know the operational side as a second entity so practical part is i know give that customer time and space to deal with what they need maybe a 30 day grace period and then we can come back to them to look at what we need to do to continue the service or or adapt the service for the maybe who's living in the property again or whoever else is pick, t picking up that service i just think it gives them that period of reflection so um that's just a personal view and i think it's one that customers would appreciate you know go away now and let me deal with what i need to do with what's emotionally important to me mm -hmm. and andy it's kind of a we've got a practical operational take there how do you see things no, that's, that's really good, actually. I, I will uh, try not to say it depends. Um, <laughs> the, what, what, one, of the, um, one of the misapprehensions that can often occur when, when we um, sort of advise with services is along the idea that somehow practically intervening and operationally intervening is not, is, is not the same as supporting someone emotionally. The fact is, is both have to be done together and both have to be done can be done well very simply and clearly um, and appropriately uh, depending upon what your service is and mm. you know what what Michael was referring to there was was for me two elements one was the what do we immediately need to sort out and then what else needs to be done and mm. in terms of those that immediately practically sorting some things out people can find that immense immensely um, emotionally easing you know I'm sure we've all experienced relief at being mm. able to talk to someone who knows what they're doing and be able to come off a call or out of a conversation and think right I know where I stand a little bit more now that can mm. be really relieving for someone and our advice would be that needs to happen as soon as reasonably possible 
Mm. Now, whether that whether that's as an employer um, helping a staff member who's been bereaved, or whether it's as a as a as an organisation helping a customer, um, and and then as part of that immediate response, what is a realistic time frame that you can put around other contingencies? And if it's something like debt collection, what's 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 available to provide in terms of a grace period? I mean, we've certainly come across seven day, fourteen day, um, thirty day periods, um, and I think you know the the accountability for where those decisions lie needs to be clear with the with the organisation and the agents that are undertake uh, that, that are giving that response, um, yeah. because then if you can be clear as you can be to the customer. They will go away feeling both at least as satisfied as they can be with that interaction, but also more more relieved and more and more together so that they feel they know what they're doing. Mm. We're getting some really good questions in here. So um, um, Elliot, Emma and, and Colin, uh, just to pick up on um, Emma and Colin's points here. Um, we're living in uh, uh, different times at the moment um, and in two, two ways, really, I think, kind of. Plus, you've got that impact of sudden traumatic and unexpected loss here. I mean, the Boris Johnson line, many more families will lose loved ones before their time, really does such strike home here, uh, certainly mm. with myself. We've also got the, the different challenges practically about uh, returning documents, um, thresholds for evidence, delays in death certificates, and evidence more generally. So I was wondering, kind of starting with you, Michael, on the kind of the, uh, the practical side, of, uh, yeah. some of those parameters uh, changing um, what do you think and then Andy kind of um, you know sudden traumatic and unexpected loss we live in a very different context so Michael what well, one of the uh, the key changes we've seen uh, or we've ex we've heard uh, stories around is how people are registering deaths now because historically what would happen is you would contact uh, your local registrar uh, book an appointment to go and see them face to face, which clearly isn't always possible now. So one of the key changes there is that rather than having to go and visit the registrar to register the deaf in person, they are willing to take electronic notifications or telephone notifications. But what they do then need is a supporting email from a medical professional, uh, which has a an email domain that suggests they are from the NHS confirming that death. So that, that's a huge change in there as well. And also the uh, the fact that they're allowing funeral directors now and et cetera to make the registration of the death. So that, that's a, a sea change, as you would expect, with the difficulties people have got around getting into the registrars at the moment. So that, that's a huge part we're seeing different at the moment, Chris. That's, that's really helpful. So um, maybe Emma and others can come back on the on, on the question box and let us know how they're kind of flexing uh, their arrangements. But Andy, to pick up on the uh, the sudden traumatic and unexpected kind of loss. Um, you know, do people need longer to grieve? Uh, how is this affecting them at, at the moment? It's a very difficult, death is never easy, but it's a very different set of circumstances at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we, you know, as you say, Chris, death is never easy and there's, there's no hierarchy to grief really. There's no one in a, in a worse position than another. But what we, what we do see um, in terms of evidence, is that there are certain situations which make um, which make things more complex co complex for the bereaved person, and we often refer to what's called traumatic bereavement. And if we consider trauma as an emotional response to like a terrible event, 
Um, each bereavement can be absolutely can be terrible. It's more like what's on a scale, really. But these are often events that seem for us to be outside of our of our normal, and so it's very difficult for our brains to process. Even more difficult than than you would have any other bereavement. And so what happens is 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 that there are a number of things that can happen to someone immediately, like they're more likely to sort of experience high levels of shock, and it. it it's still very difficult to assimilate um, what can be a normal level of information at that point, never mind complex mm. information, financial information. But then further down the line, um, people experiencing that type of sort of traumatic response can experience things like those difficulties continuing, lack of concentration, as I say, also even go so far as to experiencing um, the intensity of feelings repeatedly all over again so it doesn't dull after after a while and um, and also um you know at the limit could experience things like sort of flashbacks of memories in relation to the actual death itself or the person who's died um and, and what whilst we don't know what um long, medium term or long-term impacts this pandemic is going to leave us with uh, in terms of trauma and bereavement what we have seen throughout the world, throughout the world, is people's reactions to mass death, um, and often that's as a result in other countries of of things like um, like pandemics or um, or war or where there's been a, a mass migration of people groups from one place to another, and it's not unusual for people to have that shock lasting longer than you would normally anticipate. Um, and also uh, to find that, that that then afterwards they're still trying to sort of recover and regroup themselves um, whilst they're also experiencing this high level of emotion that's really difficult to, to sort of shift. Oh, that, that's really helpful. What, I, I had the, um, the great opportunity to sit in uh, on a, a, a cruise uh, training session uh, that was given to National Deadline and Business Deadline last week. And uh, it's great that Cruise and the Money Advice Trust are now kind of working together. And, and more news on that uh, a, a bit later on. But one of the things I was really struck with there was the way in which a bereaved person will move between uh, a, a period or a stage of kind of loss and a stage of repair or reparation and will move between the two um, during their kind of grieving process. How can we build that in? How can firms build that in into the work with customers? Sure. I mean, there are some really practical uh, steps to, to, to take with that. One, first off, is the realisation that, that that most likely will happen. We see that more often than not. You know, you might find that um, that your customer, on one hand, has been looking over photos of their mum who's died, and, and they're just overwhelmed, and they can't even put their feelings into words. And, and, and end up crying on the phone. Um, in the next call, you might find that they are absolutely on the ball with all the financial issues that the mum had and are trying to sort them through. And what people do is is, is vacillate between the, the emotional level there and then the, the very sort of cognitive one of the thinking things through and being practical. That's normal. So people, people don't go through grief in a linear way. Yeah, you don't go in a straight line with it. You go to and fro. So the first thing is realizing that, um, and in doing so, I think the first thing we would add, would um, would advocate is to is to make sure that any information that you're imparting is brief and clear 
um, and encapsulated in bite-sized chunks. Because as we all know, when we're feeling very emotional ourselves, no matter what it's about, it's hard to take in information, isn't it? You know? Mm. Um, and so what we've certainly heard of is, is agents on the phone who have given some information, but then find they have to repeat that information again because the bereaved person obviously wasn't able to take all of it on on the phone in the first instance. So that's mm. not unusual. So it's, it's being sensitive to that. And then, and then as much as possible, backing it up with, with sort of clear indication, using clear, plain English in writing so that the bereaved person can go and look at that information and think, actually, yeah, I can, I can understand this now. I'm at a place where I can stop and I can think it through and think about what I need to do. Um, the, the, other, the other aspect is, is you may need to just help walk people through some practical steps um, because if, if, you, if you're feeling sort of quite emotional towards the bereavement experience, it might be that you know, it's difficult for you to think through in a step-by-step -step way um, what, what you need to do practically around sorting something out financially. Uh, just mm. because it requires a fairly high degree of concentration and that can sometimes be difficult to muster if you've experienced mm. the bereavement. Certainly a lot of evidence for that. And this, this will uh, depend on the point of contact that somebody has uh, with a firm. And it's really interesting, both Jez and uh, David on the questions uh, have tried to tap into how do we make this engagement? And I'll come to Michael first on this and let Andy come in with a comment. It's how do we make this engagement um, uh, transactional when people want that transaction, uh, but empathetic when that's much more appropriate? And also kind of that whole thing about the impact on someone's ability to make informed decisions at that point in time, you know, being bombarded with a lot of information, going back to those 21 uh, actions or steps that needed to be taken, Michael, at the, at the start. So how do we get that balance right between transaction and empathy? Uh, and then Andy will come on to kind of the uh, decision making. Yeah, sure. And, and, and it's a valid point, Chris, because what we tend to see as well is that a customer care or a notifier can be very different from one call to the other. Um, we hear stories of where somebody says, I get up in the morning and I say, right, I'm gonna make all these phone calls today. And they make the first phone call and how they're dealt with can determine whether they're capable of making the second phone call or not. Because we see some very different processes where sometimes they are dealt with as a transaction when they don't want to be, or where they're dealt with what they with what they feel uh, is false platitudes. For example, they say hearing fourth or fifth time in a day somebody saying I'm sorry for your loss they start to think well actually no you're not because you don't know anything about me or my loss and they feel it's very false so the, the things that we suggest is um, that you listen to the customer listen for the cues and think about what is right and ask the question you know, what would what did you want to achieve today in many cases they will say I just want to let you know I'm not in a position to start thinking about what I want to do with my mobile phone or what I want to do with this savings account I just want to let you know so that you don't start sending correspondence out or that you don't start demanding bills and so forth until we're in a position to deal with this. We at Aquinity, I mentioned earlier, we deal with around 300,000 notifications of death ourselves a day. We've gone for a huge retraining exercise over the last 12 months or so with our, um, our contact staff in our contact center in Birmingham. And one of the things we do is we have changed the language we use that we deal with people on a much more personable level, but we're also now sending out a checklist of 
the information that's really important because I think Chris and Andy, you've both said that people don't retain the information, particularly on calls where they're making 10, 15 a day. So what we do is we keep it very simple and keep a very straight overview on the call. But when we send a follow-up email with a checklist, and we've seen a huge reduction in follow-up calls of the same question being asked again, because the customer is very clear on that. And, and the one thing I will say is that DNS was created by the banks uh, some 18 months ago, it went live, for the sole purpose of having to uh, prevent the customer having to make all those phone calls. So we're seeing DNS grow on a month by month basis where customers are using it to get early notification into the banks. And what it does is it's giving the customer a choice because basically what that customer is saying today is I just want to let you know, therefore I've notified you uh, through DNS. Um, and you can now as a business get back in touch when time is right to do so. So it, it's difficult, Chris, to understand mm. what the customer wants. And in many cases, they don't really know themselves, but the, the priority is letting an organization know and then yeah. dealing with those steps when it's practical to do so. Um, and we see some people are in a much more um, calm and controlled way and able to go through the process. Others are just saying, Look, I, don't, I don't know, I just need some time to go and focus. So mm. we, we encourage people to let the customer dictate the pace and don't push too hard. The worst thing that we do see is when people are pushed through transactions, um, not calling out any particular industry, but on a mobile phone one, for example, if it's under contract, on many occasions we're hearing customers saying the priority always seems to be to get somebody else to take over the account um, mm. to pick up the contract. And that's just the wrong thing to do on that first notification call. And it's, it's interesting. Rhiannon's mentioned that kind of a sudden traumatic loss, they would normally place an account on the hold for a three-month period just while people get their heads around it. Emma has pointed out a really important part, uh, point, and John as well, that there's a lot of reorganization going on at the moment within financial services and essential services. Um, so actually having to kind of deal with these cases and building some flexibility is happening very much while kind of a, the sector is uh, reorganizing itself, you know, on a, a daily, weekly kind of basis to the, uh, the unfolding response. So Andy, yeah. just to kind of cap off that thing about decision making and about kind of we've started to talk about kind of breaking the information down, keeping it simple. One of the questions is we've got, should we be treating kind of COVID deaths uh, any differently on a case by case basis just because of that, that higher intensity at the moment around, around this issue? Or should we be treating them exactly the same as any other bereavement? Really? really. Really good question. I would say there's a third option, or we would say a third option, which is after that, we should be treating all deaths now in the context of a global pandemic, which is which is not which is not to say that COVID-related deaths are, are are somehow more difficult, but actually, and I think there is a particular difficulty around experiencing a death in that way, but that actually experiencing any death now is, is, is has got added complexity. You know, the rituals that we're normally able to observe to help us in these times are not there for, for any death, no matter what. Um, and there are complexities around around infection if someone's um, been diagnosed and then died. But but for anyone, you know, not, not being able to have a funeral the way they would have wanted it or the way that was in the will adds complexity. Um, not being able to hug the people 
who you're most closest to, you would go to with support. That has added complexity, and that's going to be there, whether um, you know whether it's a COVID-related death or mm. not. Um, but what I would just pick up, which is a really important point you made about sector organisation there, um, Chris, just to come back on that, is that actually, as the sectors are reorganising themselves constantly over these weeks and having to do so, you know, that can, can create a lot of internal organisational people, can't it? You know, they can be confused and then things stabilise and then a bit of confusion again. It's often reorganisation. That's not dissimilar to what a bereaved person would experience. You know, there's been a massive change in their lives and they have to reorganise. And then they, then they come up against something else and then they have to reorganise. And then something else and then they have to reorganise. All mm. in the context of what is an emotional people. So it's not, it's not dissimilar in some ways. Yeah, that loss of reparation. Um, Elliot, I haven't forgotten your questions, by the way, so don't feel singled out. We will, we, we will um, definitely get to. I'm just going to bring them at the right point. But we, we're, we're talking now about um, that engagement and that conversation. Now, in professional situations, when when I'm talking to someone who's been bereaved, I have three fears. Right. Firstly, I worry that I'm going to sound totally insincere because I've always struggled with that phrase. I'm sorry for your loss. Secondly, I always want to ask how the grieving person is. But I don't want to put them through telling me their whole story again because I'm really worried it will upset them, even if I know that I need some of that detail to kind of help get what needs to be done transactionally. And thirdly, I, I don't know how to move it on from saying I'm sorry for your loss or acknowledging it and going into actually doing what they've made that contact for. So I suspect, I hope these are the kind of normal worries that we probably all have. But Andy, kind of. What are the do's of talking with a bereaved person? You know, what are the, the top three things that we should have have in mind? Sure, absolutely. I think the first thing to come back on around the, um, you know, wanting to try and sound sincere or being concerned that you might not be, I'd put it out to listeners that if probably if you're in that situation and you're thinking, oh my goodness, how do I sound sincere? The fact that you're concerned about that probably means that you're more likely to sound sincere because you really want to try and engage. Um, what we tend to find at Cruise is that when people are contacted on National Helpline, um, there's, there's more worries and concerns and complaints about organisations that haven't offered any condolence. Mm. So it's where an organisation or a service would go straight into the transaction without recognising or at least assenting to the fact that someone's died. So we can't necessarily understand what someone's going through and say something like, oh, I understand what, you, what you're going through, I'm really sorry, because you won't. You know, that each, each individual's experience is different, although there might be commonalities to what you've experienced. But, but what you can say are things like, I'm really sorry to hear that. And then following up with something like, what can we do now? How can we help? So, so what you're doing is you're, you're addressing the other two points as well there, which is, is um, you, you're providing some um, recognition of the, of the bereavement, but at the same time moving it to a point whereby you're asking, what can we do practically now? Bearing in mind that, as we've already discussed, you know, as, as Michael pointed out, the person might not actually know at that point what they need or want or, or what needs to be done through a process. Um, but... But we can we can do the both at the same time. Um, 
the other thing I would just come back on there and say in reference to um, needing to know about the full story in relation to the bereavement, the fact is, 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 is we don't. So in these times, uh, in, in a time of the global pandemic, and in fact in any really traumatic bereavement, someone going over the story repeatedly is not helpful for them. Um, doing it in a contained way with someone who's been trained to talk that through is, um, but going through it again and again is So what we tend to advise is, is, try, is hone in on what is it that, that you as a provider can do now um, and then what might you be able to do a little later. And the person doesn't need to, re need to recount their whole story to find, that, to find that useful. In fact, having that balance of, of, of empathising and being compassionate um, whilst then at the same time also helping things move to a practical intervention which can which can which can then help the individual calling is, is really useful mm. michael i'm going to get you to explain the uh, the dns in a bit more detail in a moment but if it's okay we just take a couple of more questions and i want to put the first mm. one to you michael and sure. that's um it's a really great it's a great question from kind of joshua uh, and that is there's been a lot of talk about forbearance and breathing space and you know we want to do the best for people who've been bereaved, but where do we draw the line? And Joshua's saying here, if a consumer has suffered a, a bereavement, uh, we've given them a 90-day hold, uh, and then after 90 days you go back and they're saying, I'm still grieving, I'm still in pain, this is still very raw for me and difficult. How do we deal with those situations in terms of forbearance? Yeah, and, and, it, and it is difficult and, and grieving doesn't have a timeline, as, as I think Andy alluded to earlier. We all grieve in different ways. I, for me, it really starts about how that engagement with a business comes across in the first place. One of the things that we've been really keen to do with our business over the last 12 months is we um, have retrained our staff, as I alluded to earlier, to engage more on a human and personal level and move away from scripting and transactional led conversations and really building that degree of support for that customer. One of the things that we're always keen to point out early in those calls is that um, we're here to help and we can do that for you. We will resolve that for you. So we take that burden away and start to build that relationship through. Uh, but I understand the question that Joshua raises is there has to be a balance between commerciality for a business and looking mm -hmm. after their customers. So it's about really building that relationship in a way that they understand. And um, each case is different. If you've got somebody that is really struggling, is an organization taking the time to understand what that customer is struggling with and maybe stepping outside of the normal process and offering support, as in we would. If we engaged with uh, a friend or family member of one of our previous customers who passed away and they were still struggling after that length of period, we would step in and try and support in other ways. Um, mm -hmm. We would think about why are they still grieving, what support are they getting, and, and work with them to ensure that's available because obviously there's some great charities out there and, and great organisations such as Cruise, such as Money Advice Trust, where there's access to support and guidance and information. So it's really understanding what are the underlying issues that are causing that continuing grief which we can find solutions to help and support that customer with away from the typical transactional side. And Joshua, I'd, I'd say there, it's, it's, it seems like where we give thought to this process, where we've unpacked it, 
where we've considered the options and we follow a reasonable um, course of action, then I think that's what the regulator is uh, looking for, whoever our regulator is. Um, so rather than those arbitrary decisions where you're inconsistent in the way in which you treat different customers, if you've shown compassion and forbearance, that you've taken the time to understand the context and the details, and you've recorded uh, the, the relevant information from that, then I think that's, that's where your policy becomes a lot more solid and defendable. Um, Andy, I want to ask you a question from Deborah. Uh, and we're skipping around a little bit here, but I think it's a really, really important one. I was really struck by this, and it was, you know, in light of the current events, um, a lot of staff are now kind of working remotely, and there's a there's little separation now between home and work. So on kind of two levels here, just to kind of extend Deborah's question a little bit, how do we um, provide support to team members who are taking calls around bereavement in 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 the home? Uh, which is a very different environment. But Deb also mentions those team members who may have been bereaved themselves, and that may be kind of family. I guess it can also be colleagues as well. How do we support our staff uh, around bereavement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really key. Um, and I think one of the, one of the first things we, we need to understand a little bit is about actually what are our staff needing and wanting. You know, so so you know, certainly part of what we're doing with, with crews is that we're we're going out and engaging our staff because all of our staff are now working from home too. You know, and actually talking to them about well, what what is it that you want and need at this point when you're talking with bereaved people. Um, so having that engagement is is important. Um, I think you know what we find. You know, a lot of our helpline um, volunteers and staff work from home uh, or, or provide service from home. Um, breaks. Uh, little and often are helpful even when people don't feel like they need them because um, emotional tension builds up over time and you just sometimes don't realise it until you get to that point where you feel like you've like, literally had enough. Um, I think fostering a bit of a positive team culture is useful. So peer support is, is really, really helpful in times like this. You know, the more people feel isolated, the more they're going to sit with, with whatever they've heard on the phone whether it's bereavement related or not. Um, I think also there's, there's fostering that culture in a way where distress or feeling as though you've empathised with someone on the call is not seen as a weakness. You know, that actually you've touched upon something that's okay. Um, and also then that you, can, that you can contact someone, whether it's a peer or someone who's senior in the team, um, for help and for advice, and whether that's on the call itself or whether that's shortly after the call. So there's an opportunity for a debrief, or there's also an opportunity for a bit of a bit of practical assistance around. Well, you know, perhaps I, I don't feel I handle the call that well. What do you think? So you can you can try and get a bit of a bit of interaction going there. You don't feel so alone when you're sitting with that as an agent. Um, and having that clear guidance throughout is really important in terms of what what happens if. You know, going back to a previous example is how much how much um, of a notice period, not a notice period, but a period of grace can I give uh, when mm. someone calls with this particular issue? So while it isn't set in stone, you do know um, what you can, what flex you can give as an agent. Mm. Um, I, I think in terms of, of you know supporting our own staff who are, who are bereaved, and you know that sadly that that's face that's that's going to happen if it hasn't happened for for callers on this. Um, you know, in this in this webinar, then it then it, it will, um, because of the nature of the situation we're in. 
I think, I think first off, it's, it's having a really, really clear um, bereavement policy in terms of how you take care of your staff. Having that written down, um, having that signed off through HR as you normally would, uh, any such policy, and making sure that where there's where there's latitude for some for some time off, some bereavement leave, or people's use of annual leave and time off in lieu of it there, that that's clear and people know how to use it, mm. and know that you might need to go over it with them again. Yeah. Um, the, the other couple of elements would be simple things like making sure as an employer you, pro- you provide a bit of condolence early on. So you don't just go into a transaction straight away. You actually provide that condolence that we talked about when we're, talk- when we're talking with our customers. Um, and, and then also, uh, you know, we would certainly find a cruise. One of the main things that people keep coming back to is around clarity of communication. So if as an employer, setting a, a point where you can talk with the employee who's been bereaved about what they want told to other people within their team or if you get the hot call and you're in HR, what they want to be told to their manager. And, and that's, that's, that's really key. And that can make a massive difference about how people then feel they can engage with the rest of their team. Because some, some employees will want to say something like, actually, I just want you to send an email so all of my team know that this person has died, so I don't need to re-explain. Other people might not even want their team to know. And they want to be. They want to keep it completely personal. Both of those are in, the extremes are valid, and there's lots of other there's lots of other ways in which people want to engage with their with their colleagues in between those. Okay, love that's fantastic. It's kind of, uh, Michael. I've got to ask you two questions because um, mm-hmm. we're starting to talk. I'm going to get into some, uh, some questions here from Jez, John, and of course Elliot. We won't forget you, Elliot. Don't worry um, about the, about support, but. That initial part of support is making the um, the reporting of a death as um, simple uh, as possible. So could yeah. you tell us in, in in about 60 seconds about the death notification service and kind of why that's such an important development, given it just wasn't there before? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's probably worth some context around why it was created. Uh, historically, what happens, and in many cases still now for other sectors, is that a customer has to make individual contacts to every organization to let them know the banks in partnership with uk finance came together some two years ago and decided to make life easier for their customers and to create a single tell us once solution similar to the government's tell us once but for commercial organizations simple principle behind it is uh, we currently have all the major high street banks uh, 16 brands as members uh, a notifier goes onto the platform inputs the details of the deceased uh, which we validate against the general records office. So we're able to authenticate that death. They put the details of the notifier, which then is uh, the identity of the notifier is validated by an Experian cred- uh, file check. Doesn't leave a footprint, so it's not like a credit check, just an identity check. Then they choose from the list of members who they want to notify. They click send. We send that data on to all of the members uh, at 4 p.m. every day via secure file transfers. And basically, that means that instead of making all of those phone calls in what can be a simple five minute online solution, which is fully supported by a telephony team in our business, they can let multiple organizations know. We are seeing currently around three to four hundred notifications plus per day going through the service and it's growing on a day by day basis. 
It's currently only got banks as members, but we are in negotiations with the ABI around extending into the insurance sector, both general insurance, long-term savings and pensions, also with Energy UK for the utility sectors. And the simple principle behind this is we want to make life easier for businesses and also we want to make life easier for notifiers to do this without having to make multiple phone calls. It's a simple online solution that says I can let a business know really quickly without having to go through difficult conversations. One of the things consumers tell us over and over again is it's really hard to say five, 10, 15, 20 times a day, I've lost my mum, I've lost my dad, I've lost my husband. So DNS reduces the need for all of that. That's a very quick overview. I could talk all day about this, as I'm sure you can appreciate. I, I think it's a, I think it's something that uh, many people are aware of with the death notification service, but many people equally are not. So it's it's a, it's really interesting to see how this will grow over time, and also as kind of you begin to release maybe some of the uh, some of the evaluation and some of the statistics and trends that you may be seeing from that in aggregate. That'd be really really helpful contribution um, to this debate. I'm aware that there's a, there's a minute silence at 11 a.m. for members of the NHS uh, who we've, we've sadly kind of lost during this period. So I'm just going to bring us down um, uh, with a couple of questions just to finish this off before uh, mentioning the next webinar. So I'm going to ask Elliot's question. Um, and Elliot, I'm going to try my best to kind of um, ask this in a clear manner. Elliot has asked around insolvency. And Elliot's mm -hmm. asking, uh, what kind of documentation would we expect to see if someone has claimed an estate to be insolvent in relation to bereavement? Now, I don't know if that's a, if that's something that either yourself, Michael, or Andy can answer at the moment. Um, is that something that rings rings any bells with you? Something you'd be able to pick up on? Uh, for me, Chris, I, I think it's you know it's it's a great question, and every case is very very different. Um, if there is genuinely no money there, then there will be a degree of audit trail that evidences that. Uh, and over time, that will be available and would be shared, I would imagine. Um, you know, it, it's not an area we see particular issues with our clients around around the proof of this, because I think, you know, with with the death of, uh, of any individual, there is always a, a very clear and concise process that needs to be followed around probate and around disbursement of estates. Does the DNS um, inform uh, the, uh, the, the firm about the reason for death, the cause of death? No, it, may, it doesn't capture that at this stage. Um, one of the things that we are developing is the ability to scan on the death certificate, which obviously does capture the um, reason of uh, the cause of death. Uh, and that's a development which is planned for H2 2020 for DNS where uh, and what we don't do is just scan it on and share a copy. We use optical character recognition technology to read every piece of data on the certificate, which uh, does two things. Number one, it allows us to authenticate the or to validate the authenticity of it, but also share a much higher degree of data with our members should they require it. That's great. So do search for Death Notification Service um, on, on Google. There is a very helpful kind of um, uh, YouTube overview video there as well. Andy, I'm going to give you the, um, the last, last word and last question. Um, and that is um, Cruise is obviously serving a really important um, function uh, in general times, let alone now. But there is worry around uh, firms making referrals to charities who are just then overwhelmed 
uh, with the, the amount of contact. It's something that John uh, and also Colin have, have brought up. Um, you know, can, can people actually speak to someone at Cruise today, tomorrow, um, without going on a waiting list? Um, what's, what's possible? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things I'd say. Um, I'll just be brief because I'm conscious of time. Um, you know, so the first thing is, what can be, what is so important initially is that compassionate response, but also um, a, a structured and uh, personal response is, re is most helpful over the phone initially for someone. And, and that can actually that can actually deal with a lot of issues for the person that can be very supportive. So we don't want to sort of dumb down what, what anyone, what any agent can actually do on the phone with someone at any given time. That's really important to get that conversation as right as it can be. I think the, the second thing is, yeah, absolutely. In this situation, um, having a structured set of counselling sessions isn't actually the most helpful thing for people. It's, it's being able to get on um, and speak with someone on a helpline. Now, whether it's through Cruises National Helpline or the Samaritans or another large helping service like that, that initial immediate intervention is really important. And obviously all of those contact details available on the web, so people can get into those. And for those, you know, there aren't those long waiting lists that you would find with an accounting type service where they, you know, they would use these. Andy, thank you ever so much. Um, we're coming to the end now. Thank you to Andy Langford from Cruise Bereavement Care, and Michael Kennelly from the Death Notification Service. Our next discussion in this series around emotional crisis. So do join us for that. The recording of this uh, webinar will be made available, and it's also a podcast. Please go to um, uh, our, uh, look us up, Vulnerability Matters, on Spotify, Apple Music, or SoundCloud. So thank you, everyone, for your time. Uh, look after yourself, and we look uh, forward to seeing you again soon. <laughs>